Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hi, this is uh, an, our newest podcast for the Chewing the Fat uh, speaker series here at the Yale Sustainable Food Program. Um, my name is Anna Lippin. I am a social media editor uh, at the Yale Sustainable Food Program. And this week, um, we have Nastasia Lopez with us today. Um, so from stu- food, tech, and crowdfunding to startups and hospitality, Nastasia has a wealth of experience in business aimed at bettering food systems through culture. She's a joint podcast host of Cooking Issues. You can find that in the, in the iTunes podcast store uh, with Dave Arnold, a culinary board member for the forthcoming Museum of Food and Drink in New York City, and has held leadership positions at Inventive Cocktail Bar, Brooker and & Dax, and leading culinary school, the International Culinary Center. You might remember last year uh, we had Del Pasto chef Mark Ladner come to campus with his pasta fire truck, um, and Lopez is a co-creator on that as well. So uh, welcome, Nastasia. Thank you. So um, just from that bio alone, uh, there are a lot of different, a lot of different things there. So what? I have two questions. The yeah. first would be, what are you involved? What are you doing on a day to day basis? And secondly, how did one of those things lead to the other? Or what, what is the evolution of, of your career in food? Yeah. So when I was planning my talk for today, I was like, how the heck do I tell people how I got here? And I was like, I think I need to just start at the beginning and give this whole trajectory of like working in restaurants and then finding an Italian boyfriend, moving to Italy, working for an Italian chef, meeting Dave Arnold, working at the French Culinary Institute with him, starting a new business. And a lot of it is like, I feel like, you know, my day to day is just all over the place. Because working with Dave Arnold, like he wants to be relevant in so many fields. And he wants to also be niche at the same time. So I need to balance that out for him. And one day we're at the bar and we're doing creative stuff or we're testing new recipes at the lab or we're working on the Museum of Food and Drink. And then um, outside of Dave Arnold, I work with Mark Ladner, who's also my partner with Pasta Flyer. And we're trying to get that off the ground and have a brick and mortar shop. So the day to day really depends on what's going on and how I balance that. I really do feel like I wake up and start working and don't stop until I go to sleep. So it's kind of crazy. And when in your life did you decide that a career in food was something that you wanted or is it, or was it more a byproduct of the Italian boyfriend? <laughs> um, my parents made me work in restaurants to pay for my college applications. And then once I got to college, I went to Stanford, I worked in downtown Palo Alto to pay for my tuition. And there was one specific day where I, it was parents weekend, and I had a climb under the table of a, of a peer or a student peer and her family and fix the table because it was wobbly. And I was like, F this. I am never doing this again. I don't want like I don't want to work in restaurants. Like it's so demeaning. It's so like I can't do it. So after I graduated college, I said like I'm done. And I only cooked because I had to because I was poor when I moved to New York and was getting my feet wet at MTV. And um 
and then when I met the Italian, I went to Italy and I spent time with his grandmother and I was like, oh my God, there's a whole new world. There's like so many different things to do in food other than waitressing or cooking or washing dishes or climbing under tables to fix the legs. Like there's so much I can do. And when I got back to New York City, I sought out a job with an Italian chef named Cesare Casella who took me under his wing and taught me like what restaurants were really about and how to open places in New York. So that he ushered me on my way to where I am and through him I met Dave Arnold. So yeah. Wow. Well the skills that you learned um, working at the Italian restaurant how did those carry in into your next career choice and then your next career choice because now you do less you know, quote unquote, cooking on a day to day basis, you're doing so many different things. So what sort of skills did you bring from that experience that you still use today? Hmm. I, you know, I, Cesare and the Italian restaurant taught me like basic cooking skills and how to work with lots of different personalities. That actually leads right into <laughs> a huge question of mine. Um, and that's about the role of women in the food world. It's a pretty hot topic, popular topic. But um, as someone who is so um, involved with uh, big names in this notoriously male-dominated industry, mm-hmm. cocktail, food science, uh, et cetera, how do you navigate uh, that? Yeah. Um, it's been rough for a long time. It's still rough. It's not – Uh, There's no real answer on how to navigate it. I think it's like a day, depending on the day. Um, Because not only do women have the hangups that we have on a regular basis, you know, just being women, but you, you enter this world and you feel like, oh, my God, all these guys are like being just, you know, totally, um, terrible to one another and then you have to hold your own so um I have not figured out the clue to make it better for women but I do know that if you believe in yourself and you have the confidence to stand there with them then they will they'll get it I also think that having worked in restaurants and in bars as a young person there's a certain amount of respect there that they have for you because you didn't just come from you know, college and then started working in the food world with no restaurant experience. They really respect if you've done your time and you've, you know, washed dishes or whatever like they have. Mm -hmm. And related, how do you feel about the term molecular gastronomy? (laughs) Because that is definitely something that applies, maybe applies to a lot of different things you do, whether it's the Searsall, whether it's, you know, craft cocktail. Um, So how do you feel about that as as a term? I was taught by Dave Arnold that that term should die and, like, be buried under so much dirt because everything's made of molecules, everything. So you can't – and it sounds so disgusting to say molecular gastronomy, like you're eating, you know, these little things that are manufactured out of other things that are, like, fake items, you know. And so I – we hate that term, and he told me to never, ever use it. So I can't use it. Okay, (laughs) great. Pretend I didn't ask the question. Well, I know that you you studied creative writing in college, Mm -hmm. right? Um, and that's definitely something I'm thinking about creative writing. And now you are hosting a cooking show that is very technical. Mm-hmm. How has uh, learning about the science of cooking, um, what has that process been like for someone that maybe didn't have as strong of, of a science background? Yeah, well, so 
Dave Arnold did not went to Yale for philosophy, so he had a really creative background too. And I feel like we both just sort of loved food. He loves the technical aspects of food a little bit more, but we are balanced out because I'm able to to take the rough edges of like um, his d- technical designs and his machines and stuff and and smooth them out and make them a little bit more robust when we're working on stuff. So. Um, I have not used any creative writing skills in a couple of years other than very technical stuff. It was difficult to to get into that zone and to think about something in the term, like what it actually is and not trying to fluff it up. But um, yeah, learning about the technical stuff has been really awesome because it's like having a whole new education that you don't have to, that you're getting paid for, you know? So, yeah. Is food writing um, something that appeals to you or how do you feel about the proliferation of long-form food magazines coming from this creative writing background or just a background as a person in the food world generally? Mm-hmm. I think it's okay. I'm not a big fan of all the food writing, and I think that there's a lot of politics between food journalists and chefs and who gets chosen to win what awards and you know who gets reviewed and how their food gets reviewed. Um, I don't think it's very uh, objective at all anymore so I can't I'm not excited by food writing and I'm always you know reading it reading it with a grain of salt um it's you know it's not something I'm really interested in yeah Mm -hmm. um further on the point of of education so food education uh has been really something that is on the upswing in America now we have here at Yale the Yale Sustainable Food Program for one but we so many other colleges and universities are starting food studies programs. NYU has their master's program. Um, what What is um, your take on this explosion in food studies? Is it a trend? Is it – yeah, how, how does that affect what you do? I think it's crazy. I think that, like, you know, 10 years ago, it was not – ever a thing and it's just so crazy that people are getting into food I think it's great but again I stress like as much study as you can do on food and as much like reading and all that stuff that you're trying to learn about food like I get approached by people that are trying to do food startups and uh, food apps and things and they say well can you connect me to a certain chef or a certain restaurant and my first question is well have you worked in a restaurant because that's where you get to the heart of what you want to know about food. Like, I feel like anyone who wants to work in food should just go work in a restaurant or a bar. Like, I really, just, like, you guys have great places in New Haven. Like, spend weeks or a month or two months or whatever and, like, run plates and dishes and get it because that's the real way that you'll get it. Like, I think it's great that there's food studies programs, but, like, unless you're doing nutrition or dietitian stuff, you should really, like, get your hands dirty, you know. Would you have been a food studies major given the chance? No. <laughs> okay. There no. we go. Um, so, but now you are involved with the Museum of Food and Drink, yeah. which is so exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just have are about to open your brick and mortar. So could you tell me a little bit about um, how MOFAD, is that, yeah, how MOFAD has, has come into existence and what that process has been like and uh, just yeah. more about how it's evolved? So MOFAD started in 2006 when Dave Arnold thought there needs to be a food museum, like there needs to be a national, a natural history museum. 
Um, and he did a his first exhibit on pork or um, what was it like prosciutto versus country ham. So he did this whole thing on on that and gave out samples and everything. But then he let it fall by the wayside and never came back to it. So in 2010, he, when I was working with him, he said, we need to resurrect this thing because it's important to have this and we need to expand our niche market because we have a lot of food nerd man children that follow what we do on a daily basis. But we want it to be like, we want you know, more people to understand what we're doing. So we, um, we held this big gala at Del Posto and asked all of our chef and bartender friends to come and work for free and do a dish each. And we raised $20,000 and we hired our first director of the museum. Um, that director changed to be our pro bono lawyer named Peter, who is amazing. We had a Kickstarter campaign where we raised, I think, $80,000 for our first exhibit, which was a puffing gun. Um, and a puffing gun is something that's like a giant pressure cooker. And if you fill it with rice or grains or beans or pasta and you, you crank up the heat so that it's, you know, hundreds of PSI, you know, just really crazy pressure. Um, and you hit it with a crowbar and explode the basin, then all this puffed stuff comes out and that's how you get cereal. So that was our first exhibit. And this past summer, we got a huge sponsorship from Infinity, the car company, and they're paying for or they're sponsoring our first brick and mortar site in Brooklyn. And that exhibit will be on flavor. And that opens at the end of the month. So it's very cool. It's very exciting. And who do you want or expect the audience for MoFAD to be? Hopefully lots of kids and people that are Mostly, I, I, I would like it to be a lot of kids who are excited about learning about what they're eating. Um, but MoFAD obviously wants it to be open. To, they want everyone to come. Um, but I think that there's going to be a lot of tactile, hands-on things because Dave does not believe in having, like, boards that you read. Like, he wants you to smell and taste and, you know, touch all these different items and really get it. For him, food is a cultural experience rather than just, like, a, well, let's read about it kind of thing. So um, he wants the definitive food museum, and I think that that's really exciting for kids because you don't get that at most museums unless you're at the science museum or something. And mm -hmm. so, yeah. So on the topic of children as a new audience each of the a lot of the things that you're involved with target really sort of different and specific mm -hmm. audiences many of them maybe as you said man children but um <laughs> i was wondering how you toggle between sort of advertising messages or just in when you're thinking about a product to your target audiences what are the different demographics that that you sort of have to think about on a daily basis yeah so booker and docs where dave and i started um we make products and we design prototypes and we manufacture them in China. So our first product was the Searzal. And because we're a team of two, we can only focus on, you know, so many people at one time. And the easiest for us is our podcast listeners. And those are, you know, middle-aged men who are usually married and can't, um, you like to buy lots of toys and stuff for the kitchen. Um, so we focus on them. And then the second easiest market is the chef market because we have a lot of friends that are chefs in New York. Um, 
so outside of that, we we don't have the manpower to really expand the audience. But we would like, you know, for the Searsall, which is a handheld broiler, like college students could be could be using those at tailgates if they have a strong football team, um, and make uh, hot dogs and s'mores, and that's what we'll be making at the lecture today. Um, but you know, we're trying to expand our market, and it would be nice if we could bring a whole new demographic in, but it's difficult when you, your reach is only through podcast and blog and stuff like that. Yeah, how do you interact with the world of podcasts? Because it has ballooned uh, in the past few years. Everyone can have a podcast in their pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what are the other podcasts that you listen to, firstly? And second is, um, in terms of your podcast, what constitutes a good podcast host? for you and and what makes a good podcast Oof, i don't listen to any podcasts unfortunately not like i feel bad about it and everyone tells me that i should but i prefer the radio like the Mm old-fashioned radio um just because i don't like to decide what to listen to and i've never listened to our podcast or any of the other people on the heritage radio network so yes i am a bad person but (laughs) um but it's fun, and we we have people call into the show a lot, and we're interacting with them more. We now have a chat room where if you're listening to our show, you can live chat us and ha- give us feedback on what we're saying. The new features are really cool. Great. Um, and to pivot back to something that I mentioned earlier, which is that you're involved with PostaFlyer, mm-hmm. um, which made its presence known in a very delicious way last year on Yale's campus. And so did you travel around with the truck um, to different colleges? And if so, what did you learn? What What's the story on pasta in New Haven versus <laughs> pasta in Boston? Yeah. Um, so we decided to go with a truck for Pasta Flyer, just because a food truck, just because it seemed like the right thing to do at the time and it would be the easiest way to go to multiple cities consecutively um, and with the goal of having a brick and mortar store. Uh, and so we rented this truck, and we didn't have any say on the design of the interior or the kitchen of the truck, and we didn't realize how much propane power you would need to boil a, a pot of pasta. So it was a daily struggle. We were, like, boiling pasta in lukewarm water, which took 45 minutes at Harvard's campus, and Yale's worked a little bit better. I don't know why. I can't remember why. Um, but every day it was a struggle and we were like, I'm so happy that we're, that we tested this out in a truck first so that we know that it's not possible to do this kind of work from a food truck. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, I'm thrilled that we did a Kickstarter campaign and we were able to beta test it in that way because, um, otherwise we would have we would have gotten investors and, you know, done a food trucks and then run into all these problems. And I, yeah, so we learned a ton by doing that. And it was difficult. And there was a lot of yelling and tears and terribleness. But it was also just awesome to watch people eat bowls of pasta. Yeah. Is it on hiatus right now? Or? No. So right now we are in the middle of a deal. And we can't talk about it yet. But if it works out, it will be pretty spectacular. So... Yeah, I wish Great. I could talk about it. Yeah, I'll be eagerly awaiting that news. Yeah, the poached egg. I will be. <laughs> I will be awaiting the poached egg. <laughs> that was a top seller. Yeah, oh, so good. Um, so my next question: We've titled Nastasia's talk 
uh, later today called Innovation in the Business of Food. And right now there are, it seems like there's a new food startup basically every day from meal delivery services to new types of fast casual chains um, and so on. How do you go about cultivating creativity? And how do you identify a, an untapped market? Hmm. Um, well, so I don't really know how we do. I mean, for for me, I'm a great sidekick to people that are really creative. And I understand that and I get it and I think that, you know, and I embrace my role. Um, I'm lucky to have people like Dave Arnold who can navigate that creativity and be like, I want to do this. We're going to do this. I know it's an untapped thing and let's just go with it, you know? Um, Same thing with Mark and I just... It's hard to know what's going to work. I was reading a quote from um, Steve Ells from Chipotle where he was like, I, everyone told me that doing a fast casual restaurant was stupid or a, a fast food restaurant was stupid and that if we're cooking our own food, it's stupid, that I shouldn't be doing it. That's the wrong thing to do. And that only made me want to do it more. So sometimes I feel like you don't know what's going to stick with people. And everything changes so fast these days that – that some people remember it for a short amount of time and then, you know, you never know. You never know. I'm lucky to work with somebody that that thinks he knows what's right and has a great presence to let people know that that's what they should be wanting. Have there been instances where you have gotten – I guess maybe Pastifier is an instance where you have to sort of reevaluate, but there are there any other instances or, or challenges that you've faced when trying to, you know, create a product or a new concept that just hasn't really worked out um yeah uh i mean yes so pasta flyer did not really work out as a gluten-free concept because we realized that the gluten-free community is a lot more vocal than they are hungry so we've changed it to be um wheat-based with the option of having a gluten-free bowl if you want that which i think um helped us get better investors than if we had kept it gluten-free because most people seem to think that that's a fad. When we came Mm. out with this Sears all with Booker and Dax and Dave, um, our investors said that's that's not going to work. Nobody's going to like it. And all the chefs are, are, a lot of chefs thought it was just a stupid, stupid instrument. So, um, so we sat on it for nine months and didn't do anything with it. And then when we kickstarted it, it made, you know, $220,000 or something. And, um, on our 25,000th run. So, like, I don't know. Um, I'm sure we've done other things that are really, really stupid. But um, I can't think I, – I know we've done them, but I can't think of any right now. But I I'm, I just know that people have said that's not going to work out. And we, you know, believe them and sit on things. And then it turns out if you trust your instinct, it will work out. And related to that um, – so you've been working in New York for a while, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of people have complaints about New York uh, for creative creativity now in terms of costs, in terms of finding financing. It's a pretty crowded market. Mm-hmm. So what is your evaluation of New York as a, as a city for food innovation? Hmm. I agree with that. I think that um, it's super crowded, and um, God bless the people that are you know starting stuff there now with new investment I you know I talk a lot about this with Mark and for 
for in terms of pasta flyer and um if we aren't able to make this deal work i don't foresee opening a space in new york city i just don't it's so expensive it's and there's so much you know there's other people trying to do exactly what you're doing and they may have more money or manpower or whatever and yeah i completely agree with that and i've seen places that i thought were spectacular close you know and you're like why why like why is the turnover so fast there should be some sanctity to like the energy and the time that someone has put in but people's um attention span just like drops off and the next thing moves in so yeah i think it's just a symptom of our culture Mm. though and not necessarily just new york's fault you know um but i think it's pretty difficult yeah you've talked a lot though about the sort of chef community Mm -hmm. in new york and how it's pretty tight-knit could you explain that a little bit more how how is this community of food professionals formed who gets to be a part of it um, and that could maybe relate to the woman in food question yeah. as well. Um, I th- a lot of chefs went to school together, and then a lot of stuff happens late night. So you need to be able – or they all work late, and then they all need a release. Someone explained it to me like when you get off – if someone gets off work at 5 or 6 p.m., you go and have a drink with your friends. When they – when chefs get off at, you know, midnight – or one, they also need to go have a drink with their friends. And so that's how the community is built. And there's usually, they go to places where they can, they have friends and they can drink for free or they can eat for free. And there's late night menus and there's only so many places that do late night menus. So I feel like that's how the community is built. So um, it's difficult for women to get involved with that, first of all, because most men want to spend time with just men. And there, you know, weren't a lot of female chefs that went out late with these people, you know, I can, like maybe Gabrielle Hamilton. Mm-hmm. But it's just women didn't have chef jobs. You know, a lot of them were in PR, things like that. And so I think that's how the community was built mm-hmm. and why they're so uh, exclusive. Do you think it's a trend that women are taking up jobs in the food space that didn't previously exist? Like there are a lot of female food writers um, in in other positions. Do you think that that is a positive thing in itself? Or do you think that in order for there to be sort of a more equal um, representation of men and women in the food world that there need to be female chefs Mm -hmm. as well? Yeah. I mean, I think in any, like in terms of food writers or journalists, anybody would be wary of having them hang out with them after hours just because of what's said. But um, I would just like to see more, like, awesome ideas coming out of women that nobody else is thinking of. You know, like, Mm -hmm. Christina Tozzi has done an amazing job with that kind of thing. Um, And she she plays it so well, and she's still so feminine, you know? (laughs) So, like... I want to see more of that thing where you still keep your femininity, but you have the business sense and the drive to like that everyone knows that she's on the same ground, you know, and like that kind of thing. She's not necessarily she's a great businesswoman. Like there needs to be more great businesswomen. Why can't there be a female Danny Meyer? You know, like I want to see more of that. You don't have to be slaving over the stove, but just like in any business, you know. And I think finance and construction and food are like three places where women have a really hard time just breaking through and like making 
themselves heard. So hopefully yeah. that will change. Yeah, even though there aren't three martini lunches anymore, it's still there's still definitely barriers to entry yeah. Yeah. for women. So in that case, what advice would you give to a college age woman looking to enter the food world now in in some form? What what advice can you give to to hopeful food ladies or food people in general? I think I go back to, you know, work in a restaurant so you can see what it's really like and contact, read a lot, read a ton of stuff that you're interested in because there's so many resources out there. And contact females in food if you're interested to get in food like me or like Christina or like the founders of Cherry Bomb because everyone is interested in helping you. That's in their best interest to help you. And if they don't get back to you right away, it's not because they're ignoring you. It's because they're busy. And just keep haranguing them until they get back to you because we all feel the same way. And we want women to to excel and to get out there and to be heard. So don't have any fear in cold emailing anybody. Great. Never fear the, the cold email. Yeah. is definitely mm-hmm. a stellar piece of advice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think on that note, that is all the time we have. So thank you so much, You're Nastasia. Welcome. You're welcome. It's nice to be here. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at www.yale.edu slash sustainable food.